Now can you hear me? Oh, like you're standing next to me. Okay, I want to welcome everyone here and those viewing remotely uh, today, for today's speaker, Greg uh, Zongalis. Um, I stood in this very same spot about two or three years ago uh, with the same chore, not, not chore, but uh, <laughs> with the same uh, purpose, and that was to introduce uh, Greg uh, to, uh, in which he explained the uh, state of the art at that time. And since that time, uh, tremendous advances have been implemented uh, because of uh, Greg's efforts. And in contrast, uh, I might say, to uh, last week's uh, view of the speaker, I think uh, uh, the future in genomic uh, uh, personalized and uh, precision medicine does indeed uh, will rest most heavily on genomics. And the first steps in that uh, Greg has implemented, and that's his uh, story today, to bring us up to date on what he's doing uh, from both a uh, clinical and um, genomic medicine aspect. <clears throat> Greg received his uh, bachelor's degree at uh, UMass Amherst and his uh, PhD at uh, the University of Medicine and Dentistry at uh, New Jersey. He had several postdocs in pathology, uh, the most recent being at uh, the University of North Carolina. Then he proceeded uh, with several positions again in pathology, but uh, landed here at Dartmouth in uh, 2004 as an assistant professor and very rapidly uh, rose to a full professor. Uh, he's got innumerable uh, speaking engagements in his past and affiliations and um, uh, collaborations, uh, too numerous to mention. Uh, I will mention uh, his latest award, which was the uh, National Academy of Clinical Biochemistry Award for Outstanding Contributions to Clinical Chemistry. And uh, that's uh, partly uh, uh, his talk today. I want to finish by uh, reading his um, what conflict of interest statement which will take a little while. <laughs> uh, Dr. Zongales uh, has financial interest as a co consultant for Abbott, has grant research support from Illumina, Life Technologies, and Gene Mark, and other financial interests with Roach, Chromacode, S2A, Foundation Medicine, and Physician Choice Labs, uh, Alan Hartford. Um, course director for CME Activity reports uh, his relationship with industry has been resolved. Uh, he, Dr. Zongales, does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use products or devices. And finally, uh, he is not receiving direct payments for this uh, uh, presentation. So uh, I'm anxious uh, to hear what the, the latest going on. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. <clears throat> Thanks for the introduction. Can everybody hear me okay in the back? If the person next to you is munching on their chips, just give them a little elbow if you can't hear. Uh, and so uh, thanks for the introduction. I was telling Jerry earlier that these are the best talks to give. You know, a lot of us are very, very fortunate in that we get to give talks around the country and some of you around the world. 
but we never get to talk to each other and see what we're doing in our own lab. So this is really a special honor for me to be able to come here uh, and give this talk. And so we'll talk about what's in the genome because there's a lot of really exciting things happening. Uh, and I think Craig mentioned a lot of the conflicts and stuff, but they've been resolved. And I'll tell you, it's really hard to do what I do without having these conflicts because we work a lot with development uh, with different companies and a lot of them are in the genomic space uh, and so on. And so uh, we, we go through and, and do a lot, a lot of new stuff with, with some of these places. So here's the outline. It will happen very quickly because uh, we'll go through some introductory material because I want to tell, especially the students and the postdocs, I want to tell you about something that's probably the best kept secret in clinical medicine. Uh, and then we'll go through and talk a little bit about molecular diagnostics and what we do on a daily basis and really, really highlight what's happening in the oncology space with respect to We'll go through some cases that I brought that we just signed out in the last few weeks here uh, so we can show you what some of the impact is and how we're going about some of this. And then we'll leave you not with any take-home messages, but hopefully with a lot of take-home questions uh, because this is expanding so quickly that I think a lot of you uh, will be able to take part. And so here's my academic pedigree. You heard it from Craig, but I just wanted to point out a couple of things. So I did my undergrad at UMass right down the road in Amherst. And then after that, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I went to this little school called Quinnipiac College in Hamden, Connecticut, because they had a strong allied health program and they had a program for PAs. And I, became a, I studied to become a PA in pathology. And during that training, we get to do you know, you had to do your 250 autopsies or whatever the number was. You had to cut so many surgical specimens and do the dissection and learn how to process tissue and look at tissue under the microscope and stuff. And so that was probably, for what I do now, the most important part of my training. From there, I went to UMDNJ, which is now Rutgers, and I started getting mailings from the Rutgers Alumni Association, and I emailed them back and said, hey, reprint my degree that says Rutgers on it, and I'll send you a check. And I don't hear from them anymore. Uh, but I did a PhD there in pathology, but in molecular biology, studying DNA repair mechanisms. Uh, and so that gave me the foundation in molecular that I needed. Uh, and then I went to UNC in Chapel Hill, again to the Department of Pathology, because there was a guy there by the name of Dave Kaufman that was doing uh, molecular oncology work, particularly looking at origins of replication and DNA. And I learned a lot of new skills there. Now, I'm one of the luckiest, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the luckiest guys in the world because when I was finishing my first postdoc, I shared an office with a woman by the name of Ann Kellogg. And Ann Kellogg was the chief resident of pathology. And she said to me, what are you going to do next? And I said, I'm going to go to Stanford for a second postdoc in DNA. <coughs> I said, but you know, it's a shame. I have this PA background. I'd like to be able to do something a little bit more clinical. And she took me by the hand and walked me to the next building where the hospital labs were. And she said, I want you to meet Dr. Cross. And Dr. Cross happened to be the guy that was director of the PhD training programs in clinical lab medicine. And they had all, all new disciplines in microbiology and chemistry uh, and so on. And he says, we're starting this new program in molecular diagnostics. He says, are you interested? And I think I almost fainted. Right? Because that's exactly where I wanted to be because a couple of things happen, right? So these are great schools. But here at Quinnipiac and the PA program, that was the time a few really exciting things were happening in medicine. I did my master's thesis, hand typewritten on an electric typewriter, by the way. 
talk. Looking at this organism called Pneumocystis carinae that was infecting the lungs of young men that were immunocompromised. It was the beginning of the AIDS era, what we were starting to see. And again, I had learned different ways of approaching things, different skills. But at the same time, I can remember this like it was yesterday. I would go to the library at the VA hospital in West Haven, Connecticut, and there was this one big leather-bound journal. The journal was canceled. And in that journal at that time was when they were starting to describe all of the different oncogenes and tumor cytogenes. We realized, oh, here are the clinical samples that I'm seeing, here are the autopsies that I'm doing on all these people that are dying of massively metastatic disease. And there are these new genetic elements that are going to play a role. So somehow we have to put this together. And that's what this training allowed me to do very, very effectively. And so on a daily basis here, we have a great group, and we'll show you some of these people as we go along. But we take advantage of all of the molecular biology skills and tools and instruments that you have, and we apply them in a clinical setting. Right? So you can imagine everything that Watson and Crick described for us. Anybody know who this is? This is Dr. Ed Southern. Right? The inventor of the southern block. This was our first tool to be able to look at nucleic acids uh, in a clinical laboratory setting uh, using uh, the southern block technique. And then Fred Sanger came about with all the sequencing technologies. He was unfortunately who passed away at the end of last year. And then Kerry Mullis, you could argue whether he did the discover PCR or not. But all of the modifications of these tools are what we use on a daily basis to answer questions like this. In a clinical lab setting, and it's not a research setting, it's a clinical lab setting, we have a lot of different questions. We have our clinical lab here, there's more than 5 million tests a year. Right? And for some of these different applications, we had no good test for a patient that was sitting in their room or coming to a clinic. And so molecular technologies <coughs> helped us to start addressing some of these problems, whether it was a new genetic disease, whether it was a new infectious disease, whether it was a new application uh, to be able to do quantitative assessment for infectious diseases, and then all of the oncology stuff that I'll talk to you about now, was something that we were able to do when we combined what we knew about genomics at the time with what we knew about clinical medicine. And that, as you know, now is exploding. And so here are some of the application areas that we think about. We look at diagnostic testing, some newborn screening, certainly pre-symptomatic testing, a carrier screening, prenatal diagnosis, diagnosis, and the last one, personalized medicine. For a lot of the things we're going to talk about, we never really needed a lab test to diagnose a disease, to diagnose breast cancer. But they're becoming more and more important as biomarkers because of the therapeutics they're associated with. Them. And so in 2003, this is what our clinical test menu was. Right? We did a few genetic diseases, Angelman syndrome, Two of the coagulation of your patients for hereditary thrombophilia, fragile X, Prader Willi, a couple of hemorrhoid tests, a couple of infectious diseases. And so 10 years later, this is what this test menu looks like. So on a daily basis, the people in my lab have the capabilities of testing for all of these, or one or two of them at a time, or three or four, but this is what's happening. And I can tell you in the last year and a half, this is the area that has grown the most. And again, it's driven by all of the therapeutics and our understanding of what's really happening in the tumor cell. <clears throat> and so we'll talk about what's really in the genome. So what's in the genome? 
And so if you look at this schematic, if you're a hematopathologist, you might be interested in the T-cell receptor and the gene rearrangements that occur in that receptor to diagnose lymphoma. <coughs> if you're a pulmonary oncologist, you're interested in EGFR status, right, to determine whether your patient's eligible for anti-EGFR therapy. If you're a hemoc person or a hematologist, you might be interested in quantitative BCR able where we can detect one tumor cell in the background of at least a million normal cells. If you're a colon uh, or a GI oncologist, you're interested in the status of KRAS to determine therapeutic options. If you're a neuro-oncologist, you're interested in things like <coughs> as prognostic markers. If you're a melanoma specialist like Dr. Ernstoff, you're interested in BRAF, again, for selection of therapy. If you're a transplant person, you're interested in chimerism analysis, the markers in the genome that we use for identity testing to determine whether the donor uh, DNA or donor bone marrow is now taken into the recipient of that transplant. If you're a breast oncologist, you're interested in things like HER2 against therapeutically driven. So what do you notice about this slide? There's a lot of things on there that aren't ticked off. Right? So there's a lot more information there that we have to start going through to see what the implications are, both on the research side and on the clinical side. And we want those two to come together. So I'll show you a couple real quick examples of diagnostic testing so you get a flavor of what it's like. It's a straightforward qualitative <coughs> PCR-based assay. And this is for the immunoglobulin heavy chain gene. And we target the gene with different primer sets in the forward direction, one primer set of consensus in the reverse direction. And we're looking for a PCR product. That sense. We used to do this by gel electrophoresis, now we do it by capillary electrophoresis. And here's what this what the results look like. When you have a pattern like this with multiple peaks, this is indicative of a polyclonal cell population to something that's reactive or immunoreactive cell population. What we're looking for in the diagnosis of B cell lymphoma is a clonal peak like this. Okay. So it becomes a target for diagnostics. The newest marker that we just went live with here um, last week is this one, FLT3. It's been around for a while now as a prognostic marker uh, in cytogenetically normal AML cases, myelogenous cases. It it's a very, very poor prognostic indicator um, in these patients. And so we're able to develop PCR-based assays for the two most common mutations, anti-capillary electrophoresis. Uh, we're able to go ahead and detect those very easily. So these are things that become very, very important. So FLIP3 has been around for a long time. We had to wait for the Supreme Court ruling on gene patents to be able to offer this here clinically because it was a very, very heavily patented gene uh, that we're now able to test for. And so Heather uh, is the supervisor of the lab but also the person that developed this assay. I'm going to turn to the, to the bulk of the talk to this, the pharmacogenomics. And this is really our ability to use genetic information so that our clinician can do this, right? The right, prescribe the right drug at the right dose for the right patient at the right time uh, and for the right disease. And so we do this because the adverse drug reactions that we see across the country are horrifying, right? They're huge. It's the fourth leading cause of death in the U.S. is being in a hospital and having a bad reaction to your therapy. This is, un this is really remarkable. And so we have new information that we can do to look at this. And so there are two aspects to pharmacogenomics, the way I think of it. The first aspect 
is about the metabolism of drugs. We'll show you an example of this. But in the metabolism of drugs, you know we're talking about absorption, distribution, the metabolism, the excretion. I term this PGXM for metabolism. And these are the enzymes. I'm not sure if you can see this pie chart that well. But these are the enzymes that are involved in all of these processes. And we know that each one of those enzymes has a polymorphisms uh, in them that alter the function of the enzyme. So depending on which polymorphisms you have, you may or may not metabolize, metabolize a drug uh, the same way that somebody sitting next to you might. So I'm very, very fortunate. It's my favorite Welshman. I think he's the only Welshman I know, Lionel Lewis, uh, that educates me in this whole field and keeps us on track with where we have to go with these types of things. But here's an example. Right, so this could be the gene for any one of those uh, metabolic enzymes, and they have polymorphisms scattered throughout uh, those. And we can detect those easily with the tools we have. And the idea is to phenotype the patient so that we know whether they're a poor metabolizer, an intermediate metabolizer, an extensive or an ultra-rapid metabolizer. And based on that information, Lionel can then consult with the clinician and say, hey, you need X, X dosage of this drug, or that drug's not going to work, you need to target this drug instead for this particular patient in this particular clinical scenario. In oncology, there's one great example, and it's probably one of the first best examples of this. And this was with a drug called arinotecan. So arinotecan is given as first-line therapy uh, in patients with colon cancer. And so in the schematic, this is for the chemists in the room if you like schematic, if you like to see structures, but the schematic is here. Arinotecan is ingested, it gets converted to its active metabolite, SN38, you ingest it. That's the active metabolite. It does its thing, and then it's inactivated by this gene called UGT1A1. It's an enzyme that inactivates SN38, and then it gets excreted. What we know now in the, poly in the promoter region of that gene is this dinucleotide repeat, this TA repeat. Most of us will have six copies of this repeat. We'll have relatively normal levels of that enzyme. So if you ever had to get that drug, you wouldn't experience any of the side effects. In about 10% of the general population, there's, a, there's an extra TA in there. So there are seven copies of that repeat. Those individuals have decreased activity of the enzyme. So the, acti so the active metabolite of the drug, that SN38 compound, stays in their system longer. And those individuals are more prone to develop severe myelotoxicity, severe diarrhea, uh, and so on. And so we can dose adjust or choose alternate therapies if we have this information ahead of time based on these patients. And so Ahmed was a postdoc with us. He's down at Harvard now in the clinical genetics program that developed a very, very nice assay to be able to detect these types of uh, TA regions. And it wasn't a uh, trivial thing to do based on the small numbers of regions that we have. But it's an assay we use very, very often. The other part of pharmacogenomics is this whole thing about targeted therapy and making uh, therapeutics more personalized. And so, again, it's targeted therapy that we're very, very interested in. You know as well as I do, maybe even better, how complex a disease this is, and if it's just not a single disease, it's probably multiple diseases. And you also know that the reason we're really interested in this is that the current state of therapy in oncology is pretty dismal. The last numbers I saw were less than 25% efficacy for a lot of the therapeutics that we use routinely, uh, and that's just not acceptable anymore. Uh, that leads to some, these severe and sometimes fatal uh, toxic side effects, but it, it 
poses a new set of challenges for us. When we do genetic testing and we have a blood sample or a buccal swab, it's a relatively clean sample, straightforward genomic analysis. On the oncology side, we have some issues that we have to deal with technically to be able to produce the results that we're producing. And some of those include, are we looking for somatic or germline mutations? Right, something that was acquired or something that was inherited? Are we going to study and test the primary tumor, or are we interested in the metastatic tumor? And I just had this conversation earlier with one of our surgeons about what are we looking for and what do we want to treat? Are we going to treat the metastatic disease, or are we going to try and treat the primary disease? Because it makes a difference. And then we have the issue of heterogeneity. Like in the blood, we have a pure sample of DNA. In the tumor cell, we have different genomics of different tumor cells in that tumor. We have the surrounding normal cells in that tumor, uh, and so on. So this idea of heterogeneity becomes an issue. And we also have this. I'm a technical guy, and so we think about percent tumor cell content as a way to measure the limit of detection of the acid. How sensitive is the test we're using, and how good is it? Like, can we detect this 99% of the time if we're looking for a particular mutation? Or can we only detect it 50% of the time, and then you might as well flip a coin? So you know that these are, this is becoming really important because of things like this. That every one of the pathways, every one of the proteins and enzymes that you guys are studying uh, in the basic science labs, in the translational science labs, uh, even in the clinical labs now, uh, are starting to be targeted by different therapies in the hopes that that one therapy will be curative or better than the therapies we currently have uh, for these different tumor types. So I love this, I love this diagram because it's one that I could actually understand. Right? Sometimes you see these and they're incredibly complex. Right? This you know, this is really basic. Uh, but it shows you all of the different pathways or a lot of different pathways and the proteins involved. And every single one of them are being targeted. Okay? So you say, oh, that's really not that complex. And you're right. I mean, it's not that complex. We could, we could do this uh, pretty easily. The complexity comes here in the biology of the tumor cell. That we have tumor cells that are arrived from the same tissue type, and sometimes even in the same patient, where the genomics are completely different. And then we have tumor types from the lung and from the kidney or from the colon, where the genomics are the same. And so that lends us to a whole different set of complexities, biologically and clinically. Because what we thought we were working with, what we thought we were treating, may really not be that at all. Nonetheless, there are tables after tables of data like this that show you all of the new therapeutics that are coming out, the genes that are they're targeting, the resistance mechanisms that we know of for those different therapeutics. And these are being used routinely. And so one of the first ones was this. So this is in breast cancer. I mentioned this gene already, the HER2 gene. It's been amplified. We've known about, I read these papers back in the 80s when I was in that little library at the VA hospital, showing that HER2 gene amplification in breast cancer is 30 to 40% of breast cancer. They said this can't be a good thing. Right? It's a poor prognostic indicator. It never really became a big deal for us in the clinical lab until Herceptin or Trastuzumab came out, one of the first monoclonal antibody therapies in a, in a human solid tumor that targeted the receptor. And so in the lab, Laura Tate is the assistant director of my lab, and she oversees all of our tissue-based fish testing. And in the lab, we test for this um, 
by fish analysis. By using fish fluorescence in situ hybridization, you can do copy number detection very easily. So you should be seeing multiple orange or red dots, and those are the abnormal copies of the HER2 gene. And if that's present, this person is eligible for treatment with trastuzumab. If it's not present, they're not. And that becomes an important distinction because this, like other drugs, doesn't uh, has its own side effects. So we do this routinely for our breast cancer patients. In the last few years, you know the other exciting areas and the other exciting tumors were lung and colon and melanoma uh, and so on. And this is a schematic. I, I've used this slide so many times, I actually forgot what the source is um, and stuff. But I, whoever it is, it's a great slide. Uh, here's the normal pathway here, and then you can see what happens when we target the EGFR with monoclonal antibodies or the small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors. You can block off these pathways so no signal gets to the nucleus, and it kills off the cells and shuts down all of the signal transduction pathways. And you know now that the tumor cells are pretty smart, so they create a mutation in other members of the pathway that turn those pathways back on again. And so we're struggling now with alternative therapeutic interventions and modalities to be able to treat these uh, tumors when they become resistant or develop these alternative pathways like this. And so probably four or five years ago now, we set up these assays. There were two very common mutations in the EGFR gene that were the so-called activating mutations. The tumor cells had that mutation. It was actually a good thing because those were the tumors that were responding to therapy. And so we were able to set up, again, straightforward PCR assays uh, with different detection uh, schemes like this to look for the deletions and the point mutations if you were interested. And then in the KRAS gene, also important, but as a, as a, as a kind of negative indicator that they wouldn't respond to therapy, uh, we set up TACMAN assays that look like this by allelic discrimination where we had normal and mutant uh, cases like this uh, for this mutation. So it was something that we did you know, a couple genes at a time, a few mutations at a time, and it led to this algorithm. And so in lung cancer here, the non-small cell lung cancers, this is what we were doing. We were doing KRAS mutation testing. If it was positive, uh, it wouldn't respond to the EGFR, uh, anti-EGFR therapy. <coughs> If they were negative, we went to EGFR testing. Uh, we looked for the activating mutations. If those were negative, we looked at the internal rearrangement in the ALK gene, which is also uh, a diagnostic uh, marker for therapeutic selection, uh, and so on. So we went one gene at a time, negative we go. And this would take us you know, a week and a half to do this, sometimes two weeks, depending on how the fish uh, assays came out. And that was the best at the time. But then we started learning and seeing in the literature these types of things. What about the resistance mutation? That the therapies have been in place now for a long enough time that we're starting to see patients relapse right? and tumors recur and metastatic lesions. And so we know in EGFR there are the activating mutations, but in the same gene there are mutations that make the tumor resistant to the therapy. And so we had to start looking for those. It became critically important for us to be able to do that. And at the same time, we started thinking about these other pathways. Right? Because we were reading in the literature, hearing at meetings, that hey, you know, these pathways can also cause resistance if you have mutations in this gene or that gene. 
it can make the tumor less susceptible to this therapy, but that therapy may work. So the idea was that we needed more information, that just testing EGFR and KRAS and ALK wasn't enough. That biologically it was a big step forward, but it wasn't enough clinically for our patients. And so sometimes I got a please, most often it was like, I need more information. Can you get us more information? And we switched to this. We started looking at next-gen sequencing uh, to be able to provide a lot more information up front for our oncologists. And so there are two instruments that we have in the lab. I can't tell you the company names because it was part of my thing. Uh, but these are the two instruments uh, that we had. They're the only two instruments out there. People say, well, why did you choose these two? They're the only two next-gen sequencing instruments out there that are designed for the clinical laboratory. Right? That they have a footprint and a throughput and all the performance that are designed for clinical labs. And so we started working with both of these. And Dave Peterson, one of our genomic analysts in the lab, uh, and we started last year, last August, <coughs> sorry, last December uh, of 2012, looking at this panel of genes. We said, wow, this is like too good to be true, that we could have one panel of genes, one test, that would replace a lot of what we were doing. And in less time, we'd be able to provide the oncologist with a whole spectrum, a profile, if you will, of that particular tumor in that patient. And then they could choose uh, the actionable stuff and really uh, tailor therapies for their particular patient. And so we went through and developed not only the technical part of this, but a really nice pipeline of analysis of all the data, uh, which, trust me, growing up with PCR and gel electrophoresis, our data is mind-boggling uh, that we can do this. And so we have these really nice uh, pipelines for data analysis as well. And so we've been doing that, like I said, since last December of 2012 and in August Last year, 13, 2013, we went live in the clinical lab at this asset. And just a few weeks ago, this article came out in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute. The title of it, Validated or Not Validated? That's the question. And the article talks about these new technologies, mostly next-gen sequencing, where labs are developing stuff very, very quickly and putting out results and doing clinical trial work and doing all of this research. And they don't even know how this stuff works. But how well does it work? And so we were one that made us feel very happy because we were one step ahead of these guys that our paper came out in December <laughs> that explains the validation and what we went through. And that may not mean a lot to you, but for us it was close to $150,000 to be able to go through and assess every aspect and every step in the process of next-gen sequencing that we were using on our clinical patient samples to make sure it was working right. And so for those of you that don't think publications are a big deal, I can tell you since this paper came out a month ago, we now have eight different companies that want to send us their instrumentation in to work with us. It's absolutely mind-boggling how quickly this has happened. And so at the same time, as part of that validation, how do you validate a 50-gene panel that has 2,800 mutations represented in it? And so we went through and we developed a snapshot technology with snapshot assays for the clinically actionable mutation. And so Fran is a postdoc in the lab uh, that's been developing all this and helping with the next-gen sequencing, and Tori and Paul to help validate the different steps, everything from the extraction step all through the rest of the process uh, in the laboratory uh, to be able to do this effectively. And so I'll share with you for the first time now the data we have since August of this past year. 
and I forget what the total number is here, but you can see that since then we've tested 152 lung cancers, uh, 23 melanomas, 78 colon cancers, and 30 gliomas, brain tumors. And then we had an incidental pancreatic cancer that we tested in one uterine tumor. And this is what the data looks like, the mutation spectrum. And so in the lung cancers, if you look up here, we had 50% of the, the tumors had mutations identified that weren't clinically actionable. That meant for our oncologists right now, those mutations really don't mean, they don't help them out in selecting therapies and stuff. Only 10% of the samples had no mutations in any of those 50 genes that we looked at. And then you can see the numbers for the KRAS 21%. At the bottom, you see the names. These are our oncologists and our pathologists that we work with very, very closely uh, to get this to be pretty streamlined. On the colon side, we had 66% of the samples that had no actionable mutations, but KRAS and BRAF were, were the big winners in those categories. On the melanoma side, 43% with no mutation, but then BRAF, which would, you would expect uh, in NRAS, were good. And on the glioma side, more than 60% uh, or so had no mutations, uh, but we had mutations in a bunch of these other genes. Um, and so it became very, very interesting. But as the lab director, I can tell you this is the slide that I'm most proud of in the slide deck for this talk. Right? All of the sequencing that we've done and what we did, and having no experience in this, starting with, we were able to sequence 93% of the samples and get good results in 93% of our samples. 5% of the samples only had a QNS, what we call quantity, not sufficient. But we didn't have enough DNA or enough tissue to be able to get it to work. And then we had about 2% of the samples where we had some other issue, technical or otherwise, of the sample. But this is really mind-boggling. And I spent a lot of time during the week with colleagues around the country talking about this. And this is unprecedented for us. And so I'll also share with you for the first time a little project that we took on. And so I spend a lot of time during the week at different tumor boards, just sitting in the back of the room listening to the oncologists and the surgeons and people talking about different cases. And it just happened that this one week at this one tumor board for a few weeks, these tumors of the appendix kept coming up. Who gets a tumor of the appendix? And so it's a very rare tumor, but it's a tumor that can be very, very aggressive. Let's do a literature search and how you do this. And there wasn't a lot of molecular work done on these. So let's get a series of these together. And look at the profile and see what it shows, because no one's done this yet. So this paper is about three quarters of the way written, and you know, we just can't get over that hump to finish it. But I have to finish it. It has to be finished. But this is what we looked at. Mucoceles are kind of with benign cystic lesions of the appendix. And then we have these lambs, these low-grade tumors, and you have the full <coughs> adenocarcinoma. have this condition called pseudomyxoma perti where the abdomen of these patients gets studded with foci of cells that produce all this mucin. And it really coats the abdomen. And this is really not a, a good thing to have happen to you uh, and stuff. And it becomes very, very uh, uh, aggressive. And, and these patients don't typically do that. And so when we ran the 50-gene panel on these, we had three of these uh, mucosal cases. One of them had a JAK3 mutation. Goes by normal control, right? One of them. But there's one case in there that has some differentiation from just a little normal cyst, and I don't think it's anything bad. 
but we have to go back and look at this. And again, we're, we're analyzing this data now. We have more cases that will be out this week. And so on the lamb case, we had 75% of those samples had at least one mutation. The majority were in KRAS and GNAS. And then all of the genes you'll see listed at the bottom. This was only one of two, uh, one of, two of the cases uh, that we tested had mutations in ABC or RB1 uh, and so on. Uh, in the adenocarcinoma, 83% had at least one mutation in the 50 gene panel. Uh, most of them were in the P53 gene and SMAD4 together combined. Uh, and then again, mutations in these other genes. <coughs> and then finally, the, the pseudomyxoma category, 80% of those had at least one mutation. KRAF was the most common in the P53 gene. Useless. Interesting study. We thought it was going to be fantastic, but it doesn't really tell us anything. Right? We wanted like one hotspot mutation in P53 or one hotspot. We say, well, this is not bad. This is actually better than useless because it tells us that even in these rare tumors, they're very unique. That we can't think of cancer as a single disease anymore because not all breast cancer is the same, not all colon cancer is the same, and certainly not all of tumors of the appendix of the saints. That's the whole idea behind personalized medicine. If everything was the same, we'd have one chemotherapy and be done with it. And so this kind of just goes on to prove and add more data to the fact that we really have to be personal and selective with these patients because the tumors are all different at the genomic level, at the protein level, uh, and so on. And so we're pretty excited about that. But our toughest job that we have now is going through and selecting out the variants and figuring out what do they mean? What does a JAK3 mutation mean? May mean nothing, who knows? Or it could be something pretty significant for that particular person. And so we're spending a lot of time going through and we're looking at things that we want to call clinically actionable that our oncologists can really act on uh, and improve on patient care with. We have clinically actionable where they can use off-label drugs uh, for particular tumor types. We have clinically actionable for selecting clinical trials for a particular patient. And then we have these mutations. The majority are not actionable. We're putting into databases and storage so that we can go back and mine the data later if something should come down the pipeline. And so I'll take you in the next few minutes to a few case reports. And so don't pay too much attention to these reports, because these are the first template reports that we put out back in August. But I'll show you a couple of things that I want to point out. So this is in a melanoma, metastatic melanoma. Here's the clinically actionable gene, the BRAF. We found a mutation in the BRAF gene, right, the B600 mutation. That's the mutation that makes the tumor sensitive to some of the BRAF inhibitors. That's actually a good thing for this particular patient. And then there was a P53. We report out here what we think that means. Right? So this is pretty straightforward. In this case, this is a non-small cell lung cancer case. Here's some of the, the genes, KRAS, BRAF, EGFR, that we were reporting at the time. Uh, and it has a KRAS mutation. So this codon 12 mutation in KRAS is probably not going to respond to anti-EGFR therapy in this particular patient. So it's not a good thing, but it's good for the oncologist to know. And then we go to other cases. So these are just from the other, from last week. So I don't have the full reports, but I'll show you what we have. But in this case, the melanoma, the BRAF mutation. It's fantastic. This is a clinically significant finding. We 
know Dr. Ernstoff's going to be able to use this in his patient in selecting therapy. In the same patient, we found a PIK3CA mutation. And in addition to that, we found a MET mutation. And so if you think about this, we, we understand, or we think we understand this mutation pretty well. But what do these other two mutations mean? Well, it means there's a mutation in that gene that's going to affect that particular pathway, right? I understand that, you understand that. But in the context of this particular patient, what does it mean? Will they still be responsive to that BRAF inhibitor? Or are these genes going to trump the effect of that BRAF mutation and make the tumor sensitive to something else or make it resistant to everything? I'll show you just one more case like this. This is in a glioblastoma. Where we had mutations in the CDK gene, JAK3, P53. What does it mean? You know, I have to send a report to Dr. Fadu. What am I going to tell him? This is not going to respond to your therapy. This is a, a poor prognostic indicator or a good prognostic indicator. And so we're really at a crossroad with all of this when we have to figure out not what the mutations are, not how to detect the mutations, but what do they mean? How do we get that point out of the lab and over to the clinic so that it can be useful in patient management? And so the other thing, I just came across this, this last week, was this. Maybe the reason why all BRAF mutated melanomas don't respond to the inhibitor or the reason why all EGFR mutated lung cancers don't respond anti-EGFR therapy, even if they have the activated mutation, is because there's other things going on. Right? In that little slide I showed you with the different tests uh, that different oncologists like us to run for them, we said there's a lot more information. And so Joel Leppert is the assistant director of my lab, of the microarrays, clinical microarray service that we have in the lab, and we're starting to look for other types of mutations, the coffee number variation. You say, why would you want to do that? Because of this. And this paper is brand new, it just came out the end of last year. Right? And so what they're showing is that just doing mutation analysis, just doing methylation study, just doing copy number variation isn't enough alone. But when you combine that data, is when you really have maximum impact on the analysis of the tumor. And so at the top, the copy number variations that they saw in this particular paper. This is actually the title of the paper. Uh, and then the somatic mutation analysis, and then the methylation profile. And so we have the first two covered, and we're getting ready to cover the third to be able to do this on our tumors here clinic. And so where do we end up with this? We have more questions than answers. What's really clinically accurate? <coughs> we know what, the, what some of the mutations are. Are they really clinically actionable? How do mutations in multiple genes affect the therapy? Right? What trumps what? If you have an EGFR mutation or no mutation, you have a KRAS mutation, that trumps the EGFR mutation, the clinical data we have so far. What about all those other uh, genes in the pathway? You might say, why doesn't every tumor have a P53 mutation? It's the most commonly mutated tumor, and we're only seeing it in 30% or 40% of our, of our, of our cancers. And then how much of this information is really too much? A bunch of our oncologists here, do they want more? Do they want less? What would they like us to provide? And then I'll share with you just one more case. 
from what's in the genome. Just to highlight to you the power of the technology and the type of information as researchers, as clinicians, as laboratories that we're going to have to deal with in the very, very near future, if not right now. And so around uh, this past year, I was uh, Linda Kennedy and Dean Sieber got me involved in this work that the Cancer Center was starting to do uh, down in Honduras. And so I went down there uh, last spring and we went to this incredibly remote village. Like remote, remote, no running water, no electricity. I think the village had 80 people or so, 100 people that lived in it. Uh, but they had the most beautiful kids. Uh, we took pictures. But in this village, Dean Siebert, who's one of our physicians, uh, Dean Mason is here, also has been going down for years. About these kids, in one family, siblings. And this is not a cancer case. Siblings obviously were dysmorphic. They had different features of different genetic syndromes. Uh, we really couldn't pinpoint what was happening with them because there is no hospital there. There is no clinic. There is no drive-through Walmart where you can give a buckle swab and have it sent to somewhere. Right? There's nothing. And, and so clinically, these guys were trying to figure out what was happening uh, with these kids or what happened in these kids that would cause this type of a disease. And so we ended up and you know, you can't get a bottle of water through TSA, but if I told you we got 400 swabs with DNA on them, somebody's purse through TSA, would you believe me? Because that's what's happening. That's what happened. But in these particular kids, we had buckle swabs taken, air dried, uh, put into a little envelope, and I think Linda brought them back in her pocket. She's got a big pocket. <laughs> And the idea was, listen, let's do some genetic testing on these kids to see if we can figure out what's going on. And we have the chromosomal microarray test that we offer clinically. Let's look for copy number variations that are associated with these types of symptoms. And so this is another project I'm sure you're going to hear about later. But this is what the swabs look like. And, excuse me, I'm in the lab as one of the, you know, the panelists that helps with all of these extractions and my crazy ideas. Uh, but we did this. And so we brought the swab back, and no one had ever run, believe it or not, a microarray off of a buckle swab because you usually don't get a DNA in it. And so we did that, and our chromosomal microarray here, the apometrics chip that we used, showed only this, like these long continuous stretches of homozygosity. And you say that four or five times fast, I'll buy you a beer. <laughs> what that indicates is really not a disease state. But indicates the parents are either first or second degree relatives. In this remote area of the country, it's really not that unusual. So that was interesting, but it wasn't really anything we were interested in. And so we also did whole exome sequencing on these kids. And the whole exome sequencing came back. And we found a point mutation in the CPS gene for the life of me. I can't remember what CPSG is. What's the most common mutation or one of the common mutations that's associated with homocystinuria? And so if you look at the phenotype of the kids, with this genomic information, with this diagnosis, everything fits together perfectly. We're all saying that, wow, in retrospect, yeah, that could be, or, you know, this could be like that, and this looks like that. And so it cinched the diagnosis. And then unbeknownst to me, at the same time we got our whole exome sequencing data to look at, we got this result. Somebody else had gone to Honduras and brought back a blood spot on the kids. 
and this blood spot was sent off to the Mayo Clinic for homocysteine levels, a biochemical test, and it came back at the level of 96, where normal is less than 15. So these kids were suffering from homocysteine. That may not mean a whole lot to you, but in the U.S. you don't see this because this is one of the pre-born or the newborn screening tests, and we picked this up very, very early. Uh, and so it made a diagnosis uh, for our now uh, to work with for the family. Uh, and, so and so what are the challenges in implementing all this? I have a few more. We'll talk about accuracy, right? I like to talk about performance of the assays and how they work. We talk about accuracy at 99.99%. You say, wow, that's fantastic. That's better than any clinical test we have. But an accuracy of 99.99% in the genome with 3 billion bases could have 300,000 plus errors in that little percentage that we're missing. And so that's something we have to be well aware of and try and do better. We have the interpretation of the variants. I showed you there's some things we just don't know what they are and what they mean. We have this ongoing issue now of generating gigabytes and terabytes of information on patients. Where are we going to put it? We can't put any more external drives in my lab. We don't have room. <laughs> We have this education issue of the patients and the public that come to us. I got an email this morning <coughs> from a guy in Scotland saying, hey, I saw the paper you guys wrote on, on this 50G panel. My wife has a particular tumor type. Can we send you the tissue to run this in? Uh, and then we have the, the logistical issues, consent and reporting, education of our providers just to make sure everybody's on the same page with what some of this stuff means and doesn't mean. And so how are we trying to meet this? We have a continuous process in the labs of quality assurance, and those practices are ongoing constantly. We have, with respect to the variants, this. this. This will be very, very exciting. That by the summertime, and certainly within the next few months, we will start exploring doing the whole clinical exome uh, here in our laboratory. And by fall next year, I expect that we'll be doing clinical exome sequencing on a lot of our patients. We have this open dialogue with Chris Amos and Vakai uh, for bioinformatics and data storage and mining and so on that we're working with. We have bringing, uh, we have the ability to bring this information out to the tumor boards. I go to a lot of them, a lot of our pathologists are there, and so on. We've created with Mary Chamberlain a molecular tumor board. It happens once a month. We talk about some of these cases uh, and, and what the findings mean clinically and on the, on the science side. Uh, and then we also have in pathology a review and sign out that we're starting so that we have more than just a couple of sets of eyes looking at the data uh, and trying to annotate all of that information. And so what are the take-home questions? Should we be asking old questions again? This one always is in the back of my mind because I remember when I was in graduate school and even postdoc and even when I started my first job, you come up with these great ideas. You do the experiment and you get nothing. Not this is research, right? That's happening. Maybe we should go back. We have better tools to start looking at some of those same questions again and re-ask the question. Do we really understand the disease process? Cancer is not cancer is not cancer. I love this picture. It's one of my favorite pictures. <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> not supposed to happen. But do we really understand what cancer is as a disease? And even more importantly, do we understand the patient that we're trying to treat and make that? 
And then what about this whole exome and whole genome sequence? Probably faster than we could ever imagine. It will be here, without a doubt, by summertime. Right? So we have to put things in place to make sure that we're doing this the right way. And so these are the people in my lab, the people in the clinical lab that do a lot of clinical testing, uh, and the people on the research side that do the R&D testing and a lot of the next-gen sequences. I'll stop. We have time for questions, I think. I hope you enjoyed it, and at least enjoyed the potato chips. Thanks. <laughs> Alan Eastman is not allowed to ask questions. <laughs> reason we got into next-gen sequencing from a clinical perspective was that it cost me more to do that EGFR analysis with capillary electrophoresis than it cost to do the whole panel of 50 genes. And that was only two mutations. One. And so our discussions with different vendors now has been, listen, we're comfortable with this cancer panel and we're comfortable with the process and all that. We want to move on to other panels. And we're interested here in a cardiomyopathy panel. We're interested in an autistic panel. We're interested in a hereditary cancer panel. So everyone we've talked to said, that's great that you want to do that. But why don't you just do a clinical exome that will cover all of that, and the cost will be less. And so we're being quoted anywhere from $350 to $560 per clinical exome. This is unheard of. And so at that amount, and so I'll get back to you, you know, how you're going to resolve that. There's no insurance company in their right mind right now that's paying for any of this stuff. But how we resolve that is, if we don't do it here, we waste a lot of money on, on expensive therapies. If we don't do it here, we send the test out to some reference lab, Quest or LabCorp or Mayo, and they do it and they build documents. Pay big money to have this done. So the cost avoidance, called cost avoidance or cost savings, is huge. And as an institution, the overall savings is gigantic. Yes. What about metastases? Or what's your success with them, and how do we go after this? Yeah. So the question is, what about metastases, and what are our, what's our success rate? I don't know that we've had a sample in the lab yet that we've not been able to sequence, whether it's metastatic or primary, with the exception of bone metastases. And, and the reason that is, uh, when we get tissues from bone for sampling, in the pathology lab, the bone gets decalcified. And the reagents they use to decalcify the tissue really is very disruptive and, and degrades a lot of the DNA. But other than that one example, we've been pretty successful with everything else. Yep. Uh, Greg, when you um, sample two uh, tumors with a 50 gene panel, have you looked at different, I guess my question is with regard to the tumor heterogeneity, have you had tissue samples that are big enough or, or disparate enough with primary and METs from the same patient to try to uh, get some sense of uh, whether how heterogeneous these tumors are in the 50 gene panel, I guess? Yeah, so, so we've not. We've not done that yet. There's been work, you know, there's a great article in the England Journal of Medicine about those types of experiments. Here. Renal cancer, cancer of the kidney. We've not done that here. 
everything we're hearing and seeing in the literature says the genomic profile between the primary tumor and the metastatic uh, disease that people are taking are the same. I'm telling you that's impossible. It's, you know, there's got to be something different there, whether it's methylation or something else, or mutations in other genes that are not in the panel. But it's impossible. It goes against, right? well, I should back up and say it's not impossible. But it goes against everything we've known in cancer cell biology for years and years that these cells have to acquire different abnormality to give them that metastatic phenotype. Right? So we're missing something someplace. Uh, but they can't possibly be the same, I don't believe. If one of your objectives for sequencing the tumor is to determine what therapeutic to use, wouldn't it be better to just use the direct therapeutic on a tumor sample, say, in culture, and see if it responds to that? So, so you could. You could do that. And there are labs that are set up to do that, and they do it in a really high throughput type of way. How is the timing to, to be able to do those types of experiments? One of the things I didn't talk about was that whole issue of turnaround time, is that we like to try and get results back to the oncologist as quickly as we can. Yeah? What technology do you use to know the percent tumor in the specimen? Yes, that's a great, so it's what do we, how do we determine the percent tumor cell content in the specimen? And so the technology is the pathologist. Every one of the cases that comes for next-gen sequencing gets reviewed by a pathologist, and they have an H and E stain slide of the block, the section before the sections we got for extraction, and they will look at that and assess whether we have what the percent tumor cell content is. What we require is in the whole section on a slide has to be more than 50 percent tumor. If it isn't, then they scribe out a section of the tissue on the slide tell us what percent tumor that is. It's usually pretty high because it's, and we macro dissect that off the slide. So the slide is a couple of microns. How many sections do you routinely use for your So the slides are usually four microns thick on the stain sections, and we usually use between five to eight, depending on the size of the tissue. Greg, can I make a comment? I won't ask a question. Okay, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> So, I, I'm, well, okay, it's a question. If 20% of your tissue is tumor tissue, you sequence it, you already know what the normal is. So you will see what the tumor mutation is. So why does it matter whether it's more than 50%? Because of the sensitivity of the assay. So your assay is not sensitive enough to see less than one normal and one mutant copy? Or I guess yeah, correct. it's correct. three normal and one mutant if it's yeah, yeah. a correct. That's right, correct. It's 20% sensitive for different uh, types of mutations. So how deep are you sequencing? 5%. We sequence down to a coverage of between 500 and 1,000 X. You should be able to see much greater sensitivity than what doesn't happen, Alan. It doesn't happen. Hearing it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> I, I understand what you're saying. It just doesn't happen. Let me ask you another one. Yeah. You build you build the EGFR mutation to insurance. How how much does pathology bill insurance for the EGFR mutation? It doesn't matter because we get paid zero. Because the insurance company won't pay for that. I don't mean sequencing, but there is no rationale for insurance company paying for an EGFR right now, mutation. Right now they're not paying for anything. So last year, last year we went through this big chaotic thing where 
all of the billing codes for molecular diagnostics were changed. And a few months later, they said, oh, we'll tell you what the reimbursements are going to be for different, uh, different codes. And we didn't get that, and we still don't have that. We're supposed to be getting that uh, in the next few months, but it's been over a year where we've had no indication of what reimbursement from insurance companies will be. And that's why I can't play that card. We can't think about this as, you know, it's going to cost us $200 to do this and we're going to lose. I'm telling you, it's costing us $280 to do this, and we're saving $10,000 for the patient that doesn't get one of these drugs. I thought these other institutions were, in fact, billing for some of those mutations. And in fact, they're able to get that mutation information cheaper by doing deep sequencing. And therefore, they're actually making a profit, if you will, because they can almost overbill. Sure. But no, they can no, actually no. bill for it. So you can bill whatever you want. You know, we but the insurance so, company is paying for that. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's, that's the question. So we can bill $1,000 for this test. The insurance company will say, OK, you know what? Why don't we give you $150? That's just the state of healthcare and how it gets paid. Yeah. Great. I, I don't think we want people leaving though thinking there are many situations where you can save money doing this because what comes to mind is EGFR and uh, melanoma, uh, ERAP. Those are the only two situations I think where people don't get treated if the drug is you're not going to give an anti-EGFR therapy. You're not going to give the BRAP. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But the other ones, you're going to give any. <laughs> I mean, the colon cancers, you may not give the anti-EGFR therapy, but you'll give, I mean, you'll get the routine chemotherapy. So, okay, no one's going to not get treated. They just may not get the targeted therapy. Not more of a clarification. So if you're using the FDA-approved test, let's say for EGFR mutations, will you get reimbursed then? It's fantastic the question about if you're using an FDA-approved test, will you get reimbursed? And the answer is no. It has no indicate. FDA-approved versus non-FDA-approved means absolutely nothing. And something that you know the vendors are pretty upset about, but that's CMS. OK, uh, I want to thank you, Greg. That was a great talk.